uh, to bring us God's word this evening. Jonah chapter 3, and we're going to read from verse 5 to the end of the chapter. Jonah 3 verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Amen. Good evening. Do you know, I forget, I'm using this mic so I'm not going to walk. It would be appropriate if I was preaching from the hardy, a hardy bunch of souls that made it out in treacherous weather. Do you know, if we maybe change things and preach the disciples in the boat and what they did and the choppiness of almost being blown as they walk the path of the church. But lest the storm has come, that was in our last chapter in Jonah. In our first chapter in Jonah and we arrive here at Jonah chapter 3. I don't know if you are as bad as Victoria and I as you scroll through one of the many, um, uh, what's Netflix, Uh, streaming service. I don't know if you're as bad as us at picking something to watch because, or listen to, we always say, right, we'll watch the trailer first and you're guaranteed that as we watch a trailer for something, one of us is going to say, that looks naff, try the next thing. Or I wonder if before you buy a book, if you look at the blurb first. And everything that's in this book is going to depend on those few little paragraphs uh, that are written on the back or on the inside cover. Maybe you go a step further and read the endorsements. Well, we have our statement, our summary statement for tonight that we looked at last week. And we find it the very first words of Jonah 3 and verse 5. This is our, and we're also giving it as a subheading, but this is our heading this evening with which everything else we're going to explore comes from. And that statement is simply those few words, and the people of Nineveh believed God. That's our statement piece. That's our picture. That's what's going on. And everything else we're going to look at tonight is seeking to explore what that means for them. And there are simply two, well, there's three questions I want to ask for you. I think the third's a belter, so I'm only going to show you the first two to keep your suspense for the third one. But very simply, what does Nineveh do when they hear the word of the Lord through Jonah? And then very simply, what does God do in response? That's our our questions for this evening. Jonah calls the people to repent. We're told very clearly the people repent. So what do they do when they hear the word? What does that look like? And how does God respond? So the people believe. That is 
opening for us the words that we've quoted a few times already in Matthew 12 or Luke 11, uh, where, where we see Jesus say the words, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repeated, uh, repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The, 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 the scribes, the Pharisees are asking Jesus, give us a sign, show us something, and Jesus is saying, well, look at what happened with the people of Nineveh that believed as the word came to them. And little did these scribes and Pharisees know that the word incarnate was there, standing right in front of them. So we have this repentance of the people. What follows is very simple there in verse 5. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. I think there's something important about this uh, response as we come to it. I tried to fit all the verses Verses uh, 6 to 9 on the screen there. Hopefully you can read that. But this isn't some kind of trade union response. This isn't some kind of, do you know what? I'm going to repent, so actually I'm going to copy you. And actually, why don't we together as a family, yeah, yeah, they're doing this, so let's do this. This wasn't a, all right, you're doing it, I'm going to do it too. But this was a response that went through the structures of civilization as we knew it in Nineveh. It is a picture that is virtually impossible for us to picture of a whole civilization as we've explored before, the Assyrian Empire, the very heart of the Assyrian Empire in Nineveh, a place of real evil, a place of, of real wickedness, and everybody's walking around in sackcloth. What a sight to behold it would be. And we see as we get here that the news of what was going on amongst the people reaches the king. And the response of the people matches, doesn't it, the response of the king. The king changes his clothes, he puts on sackcloth like everybody else, he forfeits his royal robes and on goes the sackcloth. And he changes his place. Notice he arose from the throne. He vacated his throne and he sat in the ashes. He changed what he wore. He changed where he was seated. And he goes and he sits here in the dust. And he changes his tune entirely. And he issues this proclamation that says, we're all going to do this now. Even the beasts. We're all going to get covered with sackcloth. And we are going to call urgently upon God. Let us give up our wicked ways. That's what he's saying. That's what's given in. You do try and picture what on earth this would look like in Hamilton in 2024. It certainly wouldn't be something that would cause online speculation of is there revival, is something going on there. But we will have reason to believe that revival has come to people when the youngest to the oldest, from the least to the greatest, joined with the very structures of a government, declared themselves in urgent need of God's mercy whilst also recognizing that they truly deserve his judgment. Can you imagine somebody on a national broadcaster on the BBC on the six o'clock news say, let's have a day of repentance to the Lord. And let's see, based on that repentance, if God in his mercy might come and free us from our wickedness. That's the scale of what's going on here. This is massive this goes through the very fabric of their society it is totally 
radical, in the heart of the evil Assyrian Empire, true repentance on an incredible scale has broken out. And I think there's real insight from the king here that I find really fascinating. So he says, let's call out, verse 8, call out mightily to God. And what he says with this in verse 9 is, who knows? God may turn, uh, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What I find most fascinating about this is he isn't saying we've repented, therefore God's going to be merciful. He isn't saying here, okay, we've done our bit, therefore God's now going to do his bit. But there is no assumption here that their repentance will lead to the automatic mercy of God. There's no correlation. There's no correlation here that says we've said sorry, therefore God is duty bound to forgive us. And I think it's a reminder to us that the truly repentant have no case or argument for acceptance before God. We have nothing to offer when we come before him with our repentance and say, look, God, I've done everything that you required. Now you forgive me. This is what you do. And I think often we can take that mercy of God, his grace for granted, and say, if we press button A, God is duty bound to press button B. I do this, God will do this. Because I repent, God will be gracious and merciful. That's not where the king goes here. The king says before a holy and righteous God, I will repent and I will fall down and in every sense of the word will show it physically for a king to leave his throne and sit in ashes for him to remove his robe and cover himself in sackcloth is beyond imaginable. I'm not a big one for reading the magazines of what kind of uh, dresses the women are wearing and how expensive the suits are of Prince Harry, not Prince Harry, he's the bad one, isn't he? William and the others. Um, But you can't imagine it. You can't imagine them forfeiting the things that they have. But I think to quote Jesus in the parable from the prodigal son, we see this genuine repentance. And and, and in the prodigal son, we, we hear this, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So make me as one of your hired servants. You see, Jesus echoes this in that parable for us. This son doesn't go, I'm going to go home and be sorry. Therefore, my father's going to be merciful and I'm going to be restored. You see, it mirrors uh, and we'll come again to to, to the second half of the prodigal son uh, as we wrap up Jonah in a few weeks time. But the son and the king are both saying, we come repentant, God, we deserve nothing. The son here is saying, my repentance doesn't guarantee me anything. It doesn't guarantee me a place in my father's house. It doesn't guarantee me his love and affection. But if you choose to do that, who knows, you might choose to do that. But the first priority is, Lord, I'm ashamed of my sin and my wrongdoing. And I'm going to cry out to you. We find that beautifully written for us in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. God, please. So my first reflection for us is simply that, that our repentance is not based on the position that we assume before God. Our repentance isn't based on Firstly, the grace and the mercy that we will receive through Christ Jesus, but it is based on our sin against a holy God. It is based firstly on our position 
before him. And I think as we understand that, we humble ourselves and we realize we cannot manipulate the hand of God. We ourselves are not God. We deserve nothing, but repentance is what we should do. It's what we should do. We're not commended for it. We're not given prizes for our repentance because our salvation is a free gift from him. But this isn't Jesus saying, well done, very good, top of the class. Nothing like that. Because that's our man-centered thinking. I think our man-centered thinking, we see in our faith in that way to say, repentance equals grace and mercy. Tick that box. But what sort of a works-based faith could that possibly be? But this pagan king, he knows better. He says we need to do this. As a people before God, we have to do this. So I'm going to proclaim it and publish it throughout this city. And who knows? Who knows what God might do? But from the greatest to the least, full repentance. What does this king do? Well, simply he doesn't rely on his own power. And we see that in him vacating his throne. He doesn't rely on his own strength. Instead, he vacates the throne. The throne is the symbol of his reign and his authority. It is the symbol of his power. And he gets off of there and sits in the dust. And he doesn't come before the divine judge. He doesn't come before God in his best regalia. He doesn't come before God and say, God, look at me. Look at how great I am. Look at how marvelous I am. But instead, he humbles himself in sackcloth in the ashes. He also does not make a defense. He doesn't make a defense and say, but, 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 God, everybody else is like this. I'm just fitting in. He doesn't say, but, 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 this is who we are. He, he, he doesn't stick up any sort of defense. But he signifies his guilt by literally wallowing in the dirt. This is the picture of what it looks like for this king to throw himself upon the mercy of God. What does it look like for us to throw ourselves upon the mercy of God? This is what the Ninevites did. They were repentant. And they cried out to him. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Do you know, we exist by the grace of God. We continue to eat, sleep and breathe by the grace of God, his common grace to us. And as believers in him, we have salvation through the sacrifice of his son because of his grace. Let us never take it for granted. But let us look to have the humility that the Ninevites had, that this king had, as he came before God. So that's what the Ninevites did. From the greatest to the least, they fasted, they sat in sackcloth. So what does God do? What's his response? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. What we see then is an incredible display of God's mercy 
and compassion. Here is a vision for us. In, in one chapter, we have a stunning vision of God's justice and his mercy. This is one of the many places where we learn that God is patient with sinners. Do you know, I think as Peter would explain for us in, in uh, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord doesn't wish that anyone would perish, but desires that all would repent and receive mercy. We see that in God's humility, in God's patience with them. The fact he would even give them 40 days. The fact he would give them breath in their lungs. And I think this leads us to the question, and we'll answer it as best as I possibly can. Does God change his mind? If you're looking at the pages of a King James translation, sorry about that, I wouldn't hugely recommend it. But your reading doesn't read God relented. Your version reads God repented, which is a pretty unfortunate translation I would say, but does God change his mind here? Does God see the reaction of the Ninevites and go, oh, that's nice. Okay, let's see what I can do. No, because that wouldn't be a sovereign God. That wouldn't be a God who knows all and sees all. That wouldn't be the consistent with Jesus who is the same yesterday, today and forevermore. Because we know that God doesn't change his mind like you and I do. You'd have to read this verse alone, rip it out of its context, ignore the rest of Jonah, and then you might have some sort of thinking on that. But Jonah recognizes that the Lord hasn't changed his mind. But that God is working out his plans and his purposes through Jonah's preaching to the Ninevites. To use the language of Ephesians 2, this is the work which God prepared in advance for Jonah to do. This is all God ordained, all of this. All of this is in the hands of God. There's no change to God's plan here, but this is a progressive revealing of his plan, both to the prophet and to us. So what we're supposed to learn from this isn't that God changes his mind or somehow alters his plan. He didn't one day decide this world is so bad, so now I'm going to send my son Jesus. Not at all. But that would miss the point completely. But what we're supposed to learn and be encouraged about is something really of the character of who God is. We learn a couple of things. Firstly, we learn that God sees sin and injustice. We learn that I mean, throughout the entirety of Scripture. But this chapter, the whole book of Jonah tells us that God sees sin and injustice. And it tells us that God will not tolerate it. God will not tolerate. There will be a day of judgment. There will be a day in which the Lord brings justice to the entirety of human history. God is a holy God and he cannot overlook sin. God saw the Ninevite sin and he sees ours too. So we see justice. We see a God of justice perfectly before us here in Jonah but we also see the incredible patience and compassion for people like the Ninevites what are the Ninevites people entangled in sin as is everyone do you know it's easy to look at Nineveh and it's easy to read blogs of the tortures and the wickedness of the Assyrians and think thank the Lord I'm not like them but of course, none of us could stand to the holiness and the perfection 
and the righteousness of God. And while God sees the evil of sin and while he utterly hates it, his desire is that those who are enslaved to it would find freedom. His desire is that those who are attacked and kept down by their sinfulness might one day find peace. His hope is that one day those who are utterly broken by their sin might one day find wholeness. So the book of Jonah takes us right to the very heart of God that we have this tension that is yet to be revealed uh, in Jonah's day of how on earth God balances his justice and his mercy. But these are the two attributes we see presented before us. God is just, judgment is coming, God is merciful, God relented of the disaster. And we'll come in a couple of weeks. We've got our evening communion next week. Uh, And what we'll discover in a couple of weeks is that Jonah's got a real problem with this. Jonah's got a real problem with God balancing these two uh, attributes in who he is. Because Jonah sits in a slump, much like the king sits in us, and said, but where's the justice, God? God, how dare you have mercy? How dare you have mercy on who you choose? Where is the justice for these sinners? That's where we'll come in chapter 4. But justice was coming. Justice was coming for the sinful kings. Justice was coming for the wayward prophets like Jonah. The, the judgment was coming. But judgment was coming in their days and judgment is coming in our days. Judgment and justice were coming. But it wasn't just justice. It was also mercy. So it leads us then to the third and most pressing question of this evening. How can God be just and merciful? How can a God who is totally holy and perfect and pure and blameless in every way have compassion on a people who are not perfect, who are not pure, who are not wholly just and actually far from it? Doesn't that contradict the nature of God? Doesn't it contradict the nature of God that he is wholly perfect yet would accept sinners? How on earth does this work? And you see in every other religion in this world that holds to the idea of a God, mercy is only exercised at the expense of justice. We'll take Islam as an example. Allah may give somebody mercy, but it is only at the expense of justice. Because penalties are just dismissed. They're not paid for They're just dismissed. And you think of that in human terms. If any sort of human judge was to act in that sort of way, people would riot. Because it's a judge's responsibility to see that the law is upheld, it is followed, and justice is given. A judge can't just ignore the law, just like a holy God can't ignore their holiness. So in other words, the offender's punishment that is properly and rightly due to them, is just brushed aside so that mercy can be extended. Every other religion's God brushes aside the requirements of the law in order to be merciful. Mercy is at total odds with justice. The two are not compatible. The two do not sit in sync with one another. There has to be a compromise somewhere. Yet Christianity is utterly unique. Utterly unique in that God's mercy is shown to us through his justice. You see, there is no setting aside of justice to make room for mercy. There is a big name for a doctrine called penal substitution. 
And this is the doctrine that states that sin and injustice were punished at the cross because the penalty of sin was satisfied. You know, we sung those stunning words this morning in uh, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Turn your eyes to the hillside where justice and mercy embraced. There the Son of uh, God gave his life for us and our measureless debt was erased. Beautiful words. Such truth. And what we see is through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, God extends his mercy to undeserving sinners. Friends, this statement is true. Justice and mercy meet only at the cross. It is only by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that we are forgiven. Why? Because all the justice and the wrath and the law of God was brought upon his son. Justice was not brushed aside justice was not put away but justice was exercised on the only one who didn't deserve to have it exercised upon him you see at the cross we see just how much God values his holiness we see that God would not valuate his own holiness to be merciful to us God is not willing to violate his own holiness in order to save the ones he loves But here at the cross, we see justice, we see judgment, we see wrath, and we see mercy and grace utterly meet together. And as they come together, we see something utterly glorious. We see the ultimate display of justice. We see the ultimate display of mercy. But when we look at the cross, we see Jesus serving the sentence of a sinner. We see that in his physical death, that as his heart stops beating, as the blood stops pumping, as his body begins to decay, he's being punished by facing the fury of the wrath of God. He is punished consciously for the sin that is done by us. He served the punishment fully that I deserve. Friends, that is the mercy of the cross. That is the mercy of the cross that the sinless one might die for the sinner. To quote those words again in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The promise is that the Lord will return and he will. But the Lord in his kindness and his goodness is patient towards us. And it's no wonder then that for all eternity our hearts will be fixated on this Jesus. We read beautifully uh, Revelation 15, 3 and 4. Rejoicing. In the multitudes that sing before the Lord, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. God, in heaven we will declare that you are just and you are holy. Declaring that, God, your deeds are amazing. They're incredible. 
And just a chapter later, we read, just as you are, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And isn't it incredible that in light of the incredible justice and righteousness and holiness of God, that heaven will be full of sinners clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It is utterly, utterly miraculous. You see, the story of the Ninevites, my story and your story, if you know and love the Lord Jesus, is a story of mercy and patience from God. I wonder if you can see the Lord's patience with you in your life. I wonder if you can think back to the days before you were saved, those days when you walked in darkness, those things that you did, and you think back now and think, Lord, that you would spare me is incredible. That you would prolong my life is incredible. Because God doesn't owe us that. God doesn't owe us breath in our lungs. God doesn't owe us life tomorrow. He doesn't owe us the mercy that he shows in his patience. He, do, he does not owe us any of this. He doesn't owe us an opportunity of eternity. That is true mercy. That is true mercy. And that's our message. That's our message to take to the nations. That there is good news, great news for all nations. That there is a God, though fully just, is also merciful. And he gave his son to die so that sinners might be reconciled to himself. God does not wish that any would perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, throughout the scriptures, and as we're seeing here in Jonah, we have display after display of God's patient mercy. There are also displays of his just righteousness. And it's a wonder as you read through much of scripture and you look around today that we don't see more signs of God's justice. It is utterly miraculous that we don't see more signs of God's judgment being poured out in our land. So might we come with a sense of the reverence and repentance of the Ninevites? Might we come in that sense before God saying, God, you are great, you are awesome, you will and you should do as you please. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? But we also come in the absolute joy of what the Lord Jesus has done. We come with absolute joy that at the cross of Calvary, justice and mercy met together and our precious saviour paid the price for us. And because of that, we might spend eternity with him. If that is not good news, nothing is. But that is the greatest news we will ever hear, that the sinless one died for sinners. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we marvel as we come to this passage in Jonah that you would be merciful to a people like this. 
that you would be merciful to a wicked and an evil people. But we thank you that you used your flawed man Jonah to go into the heart of this empire. That he might declare your word, share his story of his experiences of grace that you had given to him. That a whole people might be reconciled. And Lord, we marvel that you would save us, that you would look upon us as sinners and you would send your son to die for us. That you, though fully just, would be merciful to us. Lord, might we never take your mercy and your grace that is lavished upon us. May we never take it lightly. May we never take it for granted. And might we seek to live in your ways, and follow you for the rest of our days. Amen.